Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. That's the email address to send your questions to so that they will definitely get into my queue. If you leave them in the comment section, as I am uh, want to say here, then I'm probably not going to throw them in my queue. And if you message them to me, I probably won't throw them in my queue. <laughs> but if you email them to me at that email address, I'll get them. Uh, hey, guys, thanks for inviting me into your home this week. I hope you're having a good weekend, and I hope things in this August 2021 are uh, treating you not too badly, despite all of the ups and downs and bumps and bruises of life and living this, <laughs> as Hubbard like to say. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome to the show. Um, okay, I wanted to plug the podcast that I did with John Atack this week. I hope you guys will be able to check that out. Um, we had a nice ranging discussion about um, his new book and a few other things about critical thinking and Hubbard and, you know, the kind of stuff that John and I talk about in I think the over 20 conversations we've had on my channel. In fact, if you're interested, there actually is a John Atak playlist on my channel of our of our discussions. I don't know if I've gotten all of them in there, but I um but certainly most of them. All right, I wanted to take a moment because last week I gave a little heartfelt uh, you know, ask uh, for, to all of you guys about um, Patreon and about supporting this channel and supporting me through Patreon. And a lot of you guys responded. And I wanted to uh, highlight the actually thank by name, because I don't do this often enough, those of you who stepped up. And I want to encourage everybody who's watching my show or is in any position to be able to do this to please uh, support the show, even a dollar uh, or two a month. Obviously, of course, more is awesome. But, you know, even that actually does build up and it actually does help and it makes a difference over time. And so I wanted to thank uh, Sierra Bali Cakes Boof, uh, John Boer, Eugenia Romanova, Jason, Leanne Melkor, Felicity Kusinitz, uh, Jan, uh, Jacqueline Valla Rollins, Tammy Bian Colon. Uh, greetings from the city formerly known as Portland's Anarchist Jurisdiction is uh, somebody who is uh, supporting this channel. Uh, Annie Ellen Hoskins, Janet Gastel, Susanna Juby, Dylan. Marilee Fletcher, Becky Mack, Lisa Green, and Eric Stiles. All of you guys have signed up this month uh, through uh, Patreon. Um, so thank you. Thank you very, very much for your pledges. And I hope more of you guys can uh, sign on. And I hope that the work I'm doing is worth that. So, all right. All that being said and those shout outs being given. And again, thank you all of you guys who are supporting me through this through that effort. And of course, also all of you who um, have it in your hearts to send through PayPal, the one-offs, you know, giving me some uh, love and support that way is also just wonderful. And like I said, kind of needed right now. So I really do appreciate it. All right, let's get on with your questions now. Steve Wood. Hubbard was known as a writer to go off into a room and write for hours on end even being up all night and pounding out voluminous works, whether they were stories or Scientology. Did anyone at any point demand Hubbard present some kind of proof or evidence of his work? Did everyone just take him at his word? 
Could this play into the fact why Scientology was never publicly debated or examined because deep down he knew it was a scam and did not need negative publicity? In the first year that Dianetics was out, and John Atack would be somebody who could speak much more in much more detail about this, but what I can tell you is that um, the first year of Dianetics was a year where Hubbard was trying to pay lip service and give some sort of uh, demonstrations of, of Dianetics and its efficacy, okay, that it worked and that it produced results. And the Hubbard Dianetics Research Foundations, the, the places in Los Angeles and uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, which where they, they kind of set up shop initially and had people actively working on uh, this new science of the mind, they were doing testing and they were doing IQ testing and, and some kind of aptitude testing. I think they used uh, the Army Alpha Otis test or something and a few other kinds of tests. And they did this in order to show before and after results of Dianetic processing. And they put this together into a little pamphlet or booklet to show that Dianetics was legitimate, that it had been verified, validated, I think is what the term they used. It was the world's only, they were presenting, the only the world's only validated form of psychotherapy, um, which of course was nonsense. But, you know, Hubbard was never one to let a grandiose claim uh, just, you know, uh, go by without him saying it. You know, he had to put it out there. So, so this was something that was going on and they were pretty serious about it. And Hubbard actually talked about in his lectures about how they were doing this testing and how it was validated and scientific. And it was all about trying to make Dianetics into a science. And a validated science means peer review. It means uh, actual you know, statistical analysis, it means uh, research, it means case studies, and it means uh, peer review, okay? This is how a science gets validated. You can make any claim you want, but if somebody else can't look at your results uh, and verify they are done properly, procedurally correct, that the math is all right, and then if they can't go and replicate those results or some semblance of them, then you don't really have a science. You don't have a legitimate claim. And um, and this is a problem all the time, especially in the social sciences where, you know, the number of variables in play in the human mind are damn near infinite. And so, you know, controlling for all of those things can be difficult. So, you know, we make the best effort we can with this. Hubbard didn't even do that much. <laughs> it was just a matter of, well, here's some tests, and they have a before and an after, and it's better after, so therefore, we're legit. Prior to that, he had asserted that he had a series of case studies that he had done, which he put together prior to his publication of Dianetics. It was in this uh, other book that's now known as Dianetics, the Original Thesis. At the time, it was called Abnormal Dianetics, and this was the... the um, paper that Hubbard wrote with case studies at the end, which were supposed to prove to, this was, the, this was the thing he sent to the American Medical Association and the American Psychological Association and said, hey, you know, this is, this is legit stuff. Well, his case studies were like a page paragraph summary of a case study. It wasn't, here's the original paperwork, here's all the notes, here's the research. None of that was included. I don't know if it even exists. Uh, if it does, it's hidden away, stashed up in Hubbard's archives at the Gold Base or wherever the Church of Spiritual Technology holds on to that stuff. I, I really don't know exactly where that stuff is, uh, maybe multiple locations, but 
it certainly was never presented to the scientific community for review, is my point. Um, and after the first year with, Scient with Dianetics, Scientology didn't even exist yet, but with Dianetics being lambasted by scientists who were trying to review it or who read Dianetics and talked to people who practiced Dianetics, there were a lot of articles being written back in that time, uh, 1950, 1951, even 1952, where people tried to do some study or some research using Dianetics, and none of them validated it for at all. It was, you know, Hubbard's uh, writing is laborious and, um, and difficult and kind of ridiculous in many ways. It is the exact opposite of academic writing. I, I now know a little bit about this, <laughs> right? And, uh, and Hubbard's writing is, is very unclear and very uh, uncertain in a field where you need to, you know, he made very certain statements. He said, this stuff works. Psychosomatic illnesses make up 75 or 80% of all illnesses. But then where's the citation? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence that 75% that, that of all illnesses are psychosomatic in nature? He just throws these kind of claims out there and expects people to believe him. And laymen did. Scientists didn't. Engineers, unfortunately, did. But real scientists, I mean, people who practice science and the scientific method, they didn't, they didn't really go for that very much. At least a bunch of them didn't. Now... Um, and so we had critical papers and that sort of thing about this. You mentioned in your original version of the question that there was this poor woman who had been shown in, I think it was uh, July or August of 1950. She was uh, displayed at the uh, Shrine Theater as the world's first uh, clear or a clear, Sonia Bianca, I think her name was. And she was uh, on stage with, you know, four or 5,000. I guess it was a packed place. And the shrine holds about 5,500 people. So she was, you know, standing there on stage with L. Ron Hubbard in front of all these people. And he turned and, and he was wearing a tie. And he asked her with his back to her, what color is my tie? And she didn't know, much less uh, she could not prove any kind of eidetic recall, you know, where you have accurate memory but Hubbard was making these claims that clears have eidetic memory. They have perfect, clear memory of everything that's ever happened to them. Well, that claim was thrown right off the stage, and people started walking out of there and thought that was ridiculous. So between that kind of experience, which Hubbard, I guess, thought was going was gonna to be a much more amazing show for these people, and instead it was a disaster almost uh, on the on the order of Mike Lindell, the My Pillow Guy's recent symposium, <laughs> if you guys saw or heard about that, it was about that big of a debacle, and, uh, and so Hubbard looked like a damn idiot. And there were published, you know, articles about this. I mean, his, his, this was not good for him. Uh, then they tried to do this whole testing thing, you know, concurrently, and that didn't really fly. And I guess Hubbard just decided, well, this isn't really something I need to be paying a whole lot more attention to. And at that point, anybody who questioned him or, you know, gave him a hard time about it, he would just rip into them and rip their face off. And that was basically his modus operandi from that point forward. He would just sort of assert of course it's validated, of course it's true, and it's so true and so validated and so obviously true, I don't even need to show you anything. You're the one who has the problem, not me. 
you scientist guys don't even know what you're talking about. And he would lambaste science and scientists from that point forward, right? Because they'd made him out to be a fool. And Hubbard didn't like to be made a fool of, but he was a fool. When it came to science, he was an absolute asshat. The guy had no clue what he was doing when it came to science. So, um, so he was very, very testy on that. And he would just use his vindictive, you know, meanness to push back on that from that point forward. As far as I can tell, that was my experience with this and, and, and within the knowledge that I have about it. So anyway, I hope that answers that question, gives you a little bit more insight into that and into, um, into the history of Dianetics and how that became Scientology. And, you know, as a faith-based thing with Scientology, of course, Hubbard also felt the pressure come off because it's a religion. I don't have to prove shit to you. It's, you know, it's, it's a religious philosophy. Take it or leave it. And that was kind of his attitude about it from that point forward. Jonathan Perry. Are there any movies that involve Tom Cruise, John Travolta, or any of the other usual suspects that are forbidden for Scientologists to watch because they don't adhere to their values? The only one I can think of off the top of my head is maybe Eyes Wide Shut, but they've both been in controversial movies, even for the secular crowd. Hey, thanks for this question, Jonathan. Uh, it's kind of an interesting one, but no. Uh, if Scientologists had a real value or moral problem with what you know they were showing in a or acting out in a movie, then they wouldn't do it. Um, now, I think the exception to this might be uh, Isaac Hayes, having uh, been involved in South Park, but he actually wasn't in, if I remember right, or was barely in the uh, the uh, in the closet episode, Tom Cruise and and the Scientology episode of South Park. So I don't know that he even knew they were doing that until after the show had been had been put out. So um, that's the only one where there was where there was actually a Scientologist on board a TV show where Scientology's most guarded secrets were actually being openly revealed to the public. And Isaac Hayes, of course, was made to quit that show right after that. I don't think he, I heard that he didn't even want to, that he wasn't really that, you know, uh, uh, out of sorts about the whole thing. But of course, the church was fit to be tied and, and they were, you know, trying to destroy Trey and Matt at that point. So Isaac Hayes was not going to be allowed to continue being part of that show. But that's really about as close as we've ever come in terms of seeing Scientologists as actors or as talent involved in a production which had values that were just completely not going to fly with Scientology's morality. Even, um, oh gosh, what's her name, uh, Laura Prepon on uh, Orange is the New Black playing a lesbian. And in a show where lesbian activity was just a regular thing, yeah, that hits right up against Scientology's values, but it also had a PR function of showing that a Scientologist was okay with this whole world of gayness and look how accepting we are and look how wonderful we are. So there was a PR value to her being on that show. And I don't know that the church really had a whole lot to, to say about that one way or the other. Um so they're not discouraged from watching those episodes, although I think you'll find a lot of Scientologists not really into it because of what Hubbard, you know, has to say about that. But it really, again, that whole gay thing or the whole LGBT issue really only hits hard 
when you're trying to get into the confidential materials under the OT levels and stuff. So even lower level Scientologists who haven't yet hit that brick wall and don't really understand or read Hubbard in depth, they might not even know about the whole anti-LGBT thing. It's really, it's really you got to dig a little bit in order to get that in the Scientology experience, you know. Uh, eventually that you'll get acculturated to it and you'll fall into line with that way of thinking, but it's not something you're going to necessarily hit right away. As far as Eyes Wide Shut, it was controversial, but remember Cruz made that when he was with Nicole and he was basically out of Scientology when he made that movie. He was not doing Scientology anymore through most of the 1990s. That's why Miscavige went on such a uh, rabid mission to get him back and uh and that happened in the late 90s early 2000s and that's when marty rathman you know wove his magic with tom cruise and and thoroughly um you know uh pulled back up his inner narcissist and got him to get rid of nicole and and all of that so that wasn't a result of eyes wide shut or anything like that i'm just making the point that when he made that movie he wasn't really a scientologist um Okay, so you have, uh, let's see, as far as any other kind of, you know, forbidden to watch. No, not really. I mean, they're not, that's not really how, uh, how that's really rolled out. I can't think of any other examples right now of, uh, of any controversial movies that Scientologists were involved in. However, I do want to comment on the fact that there are movies that Scientologists are definitely uh, frown upon, don't like, don't want to go anywhere near. Top of the list, The Master. <laughs> Obviously, Scientologists hate that movie. I never met a Scientologist who liked it. If, they're, if they exist, great, but I never saw one. Um, as far as the only other one that comes to mind right away was, um, I, I'm, I should have looked this up before I answered this, but it was the um, Eddie Murphy movie. Uh, that featured a cult called Mindhead. <laughs> I think Terrence Stamp played the cult leader and um, the same guy who played Zod back in the old Superman 2. And, uh, and Scientologists did not like that one bit because the parallels to Scientology were painfully obvious. You might see this sort of thing reflected in certain video games too, like Far Cry or some other videos where uh, I think Fallout has a whole Scientology parody thing going on there. They probably don't appreciate that too much, but I never, ever saw official church dogma saying thou shalt not watch or play these movies or these games. It was just more of a cultural thing. Just, oh, that movie? Oh, God, why would you want to see that? You know, kind of a kind of approach to it. So that was my experience with that. Michael Yoder, given the regimentation of the Sea Org and the Church of Scientology in general, did anyone ever display simple etiquette like saying please and thank you, or giving an acknowledgement of good work, or asking to open a door? Seems simple, but nothing in Scientology is simple. How funny you mention this, Michael, because in fact there is a flag order, flag order 38, which is titled Etiquette. And it is an issue that every Sea Org member is intimately familiar with, and it was probably sat down and word cleared many, many times. And as I am wont to do, I love reading from the scriptures. So let me read you a little bit from this issue. This was put out while uh, early, early on. This is August 1967. 
So this is like Sea Org is brand spanking new. And these flag orders are issues, are, are written issues that Hubbard wrote, which, which are the policy for the Sea Org. These are the these are the issues that that lay out how the Sea Org are supposed to do their jobs, what the correct attitude and um, all of that is for uh, how you be a Sea Org member. It's all in the flag orders, and uh, of course the policy letters, the the HCO policy letters and the HCO bulletins are also used in the Sea Org. But the flag orders are specific to the Sea Org. And this sort of thing filters down to the public and the staff through exposure, but Sea Org uh, are the only ones who are actually supposed to be seeing the flag orders or reading them. They're not supposed to be shown to the public at large. They're not for broad public issue, which is why you don't see or hear too much about them very often. Um, but I've got them. So at least I've got quite a few of them. And I'm going to read this to you because this one was rubbed in our face <laughs> all the time. And... Um, and usually the way this would work is, well, let me read you a couple lines from it, and then I'll tell you how it would work. So Flag Order 38, Etiquette. A ship is a small world. Courtesy and thoughtfulness make elbows rub better and add certainty to conduct. There are certain points of maritime courtesy which are observed on ships which should be followed. Uh, then he goes into a long paragraph by paragraph by paragraph uh, breakdown of various things that that individuals do or that you do as customs on the ship in order to, you know, that this is just the agreements of how ship conduct is. For example, um, colors and flags are raised at 8 a.m. and struck at sunset. The national ensign raised first and struck last. And if that's, you know, gooberish to you, well, it was gooberish to me, too, when I, you know, gibberish when I first uh, read it, because we had to get all this maritime nautical language, you know, ship language and ship lore. And you had to learn all this crap, right? Like flags and colors and, you know, when they going up and down and, and what's the focusal and, and what's the, uh, you know, aft and stern and port and starboard and all this stuff. We had to learn all that crap. Um but there are rules here for conduct. For example, when aboard, on meeting an officer for the first time in the day, the junior says, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, as the time of day applies. When aboard, one does not salute. The senior nods or replies. Ashore, when meeting an officer or senior and one intends to address him, one salutes. The senior returns the salute. This applies with us in or out of uniform, cap on or cap off. So you imagine, you know, these guys are out there on leave or out there in civvies on running around the town or running around the port and they see each other and they're supposed to salute even if they're not in uniform. I mean, you can imagine that this was kind of silly and it probably made the locals, you know, scratch their head a little bit. We, we did not take it to that extreme. When we saw each other at Safeway on Sunday morning when we were doing our grocery shopping, we weren't saluting one another. I can tell you that. Uh, nobody even thought about it. But it's interesting how, it's, how, how the conduct is laid out here. Um, you know, obtain the captain's or senior officer's permission to leave the ship. Um, let's see. Before changing course or speed or starting engines, obtain the captain's permission. Um, let's see here if there was a few others. There was something in here about how when you're carrying things on deck, 
people are supposed to get the hell out of your way. You know, you might not even be able to see them, even if it's a senior officer. And this was something that was observed pretty regularly and pretty closely on the base. If you're running around, you know, man with a load, right? A uh, person with a load. If, there, if somebody was carrying shit, you got out of their way. That was very much part of the practical and actual etiquette that we practiced. Saying thank you, saying please, you know, using forms of address, uh, opening doors for people like seniors. I did that all the time. People did that all the time. That was just uh, common courtesy on the base, and we all tried to follow it. And it was the way that you would show respect to your seniors and stuff like that. So um, really saluting and that kind of thing was not really something that we were doing a whole lot of except on Sea Org Day when we were getting promoted. But as far as the rest of it goes, um, yeah, these things were encouraged, which in a way, if you think about it, um, I mean, you know, it, it made things a little bit, as he, as he writes in the issue, it made things a little bit more certain, a little bit more sure as to how to act. But you could get busted for being out FO38, right? Out etiquette. These were the term, that was how we talked about it all the time. You know, if you didn't, Say, sir, if you didn't stand when an officer came in the room or a senior, senior type person, if um, if they thought you weren't respecting them in some fashion, then you'd get, hey, get your FO38 in. You're out FO38. You know, so this all was also used as a bludgeon to, you know, snap people into line, keep them on their toes and make things a little uncertain. That's the nature of a cult. So, uh, so you both do and don't have these these niceties or these manners being paid attention to, depending on the, the context and the circumstances. But that's uh, how I can answer your question, and I hope it gives you some more uh, data about how life was in the Sea Org. Judith M. Elron Hubbard died in 1986. That means that in 2037, life plus 50 years. His works enter the public domain in New Zealand, Canada, and a few other countries. That's only 16 years from now. Does the Church of Scientology have any plan for what happens when Hubbard's works enter the public domain? Without the copyright protection, what would stop someone from taking Hubbard's writings and starting a rival church? All right, Judah, thank you for this. Now, I am by far not a copyright expert, but I will tell you what I know or think I know about this, because this is the sort of the the word around the campfire in the ex-Scientology world from the, from the time I got into it. And that is that Miscavige has been revising and re-editing all of Hubbard's works specifically to renew the copyrights on the material so that it does stay under copyright and service mark protection under the Church of Scientology so other people can't just take them and run off with them. Uh, specifically, they make these little changes or adjustments. And this is pretty much, you know, they take all the commas out of Science of Survival and they say it's a, you know, it's your new book, new copyright. As of this date, this work is now copyrighted and they can carry forward. And this has been done with all, every single one of Hubbard's books, or at least all the basic books, and of course, all of his lecture materials. And they can edit and make changes and re-release and re-copyright it and keep the copyrights under their control. And that's what they've been working on, as I understand it. Um, and in fact, a rival church or two actually has come along the line. In fact, fairly recently, there was an independent church of Scientology put together, which tried to incorporate and in which Scientology went after. And if I remember 
Right. I think that's either still up in the air or they might have taken him to court. I don't I don't remember exactly what happened with that, but that an effort was made to try to use Scientology in a in a copyrighted sense by a non science Church of Scientology official group. And I don't think Scientology was down with that. I think they went after them. Um, but otherwise, I think the copyrights are actually still in force. And this is not just something Scientology nefariously does. I mean, Disney's been doing this forever. You know, there's a ton of intellectual property out there that gets this kind of treatment by these, you know, ruthless companies that don't want their works going into the public domain. So they make changes to them or they update them or they even go back and they get the laws changed. I mean, there has been a lot of work done by Disney uh, specifically, I'm sure other companies too, to keep their copyrights enforced by gaming the system or by, you know, making, this is why, you know, these live action remakes of Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, all this stuff, uh, Pinocchio, I think most recently, uh, this is one of the reasons these things happen is because they, they, they reproduce the work and I think they get to recopyright it or something like that. Like I said, I'm not exactly an expert on this, but that's how I kind of understand it works. And so that's why Scientology is not really uh, too concerned about, you know, their copyrights running out. At the same time, they're really so hampered now in going after people who um, are violating their copyrights or trademarks that they, you know, they don't really do a whole lot with that. Like I said, I, that, that recent independent church, I just can't remember exactly what happened with that. But I haven't seen them going after too many people on this lately. And, uh, and that's kind of interesting. Uh, for a number of reasons, but there you go. Jay Ash, what the heck happened to Mission Into Time? I remember people in my org discussing it a lot, but I never met anyone who actually read it, and it was never available in any org's bookstore. Clearly, everyone wanted it back then, so where did it go? Okay, Mission Into Time. Yeah, this was a little tiny book. This was maybe 50, 60 pages, if I remember right. And it was um, it was sort of an accounting of a project or a mission that L. Ron Hubbard ordered to be done, in which he ran personally for the Sea Org, I think in 1968 or so, where they went into the Mediterranean to, off the coast of Greece, and Hubbard decided to test his OT recall. Maybe this might have even been back in 67. And he took his little Sea Org guys, and they went off the coast of Greece, I think it was. And Hubbard said that there's going to be, based on his memory, they were looking for lost treasure <laughs> that he said he'd buried like a thousand years ago or something. And so they were digging around in, in the ground out there looking for, um, based on these landmarks that Hubbard said existed based on his memory of the area from his past lives, because he said this was an area he had never been to in his current life. So they took his memories and they went and dug for gold and they didn't find shit. And uh, the book is basically a write-up of their failure, but uh, spun in such a way that it looks very fantastic and interesting. But really, at the end of the day, you read it and you go, okay, uh, you know, not really much there. Not really, no, no real proof positive of past lives. You know, if they had found like, you know, thousands of dollars in gold or something or, or ancient treasure, then whoa, that would have been amazing. But they didn't. <laughs> and so this book was popularized in the 60s and 70s as, you know, this really amazing thing that Hubbard had pulled off with his Sea Org people. 
And so people thought it was really interesting in the same way they thought the book Have You Ever Lived Before This Life was also proof positive of past lives. And, of course, How You Lived Before This Life is just a collection of anecdotes from people's auditing fantasies about past lives and running around in robot bodies and spaceships and crap like that. And people read this in ooh and awe about these case studies and think that this is proof that Scientology is digging up, you know, that, that, that past lives are real. So that's what the Mission Into Time book was. And it was basically sort of quietly stopped being produced at some point, I believe in the 80s. Um, I saw it uh, at the org in the 80s, maybe the 90s, you know, they, they just stopped making them. Uh, because it wasn't written by Hubbard. It was written by people who had been working for Hubbard, and it was written around this mission that Hubbard had run, but it wasn't an L. Ron Hubbard book. And so, you know, that was really frowned upon at a certain point where if it's not L. Ron Hubbard, we don't want anything to do with it. And, um, and I think that's how it basically got phased out of existence, but that's what it was about. And, um, and there you go. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers. Travis, would you watch a rom-com that's set in prison? I wouldn't watch a rom-com, period. I, I don't like rom-coms. I haven't in quite some time. <laughs> Jew Martins, have you ever heard of access consciousness slash access bars? Do you know about its connections to Scientology? I've heard people say it's a watered-down version of Scientology, but I couldn't really make the connection other than the founder, Gary Douglas, was married to a Scientologist at one point in his life. Okay, thanks for this question. This is really deserves a whole video on its own or a whole breakdown, but I'm probably not going to do that anytime soon because this is not a group that is something that is really on my radar a whole lot. I've talked to a couple of former members of Access Consciousness privately, and um, this guy, Gary Douglas, is incredibly litigious, and he was a Scientologist, and Access Consciousness is nothing but a Scientology ripoff. And, uh, and the whole, you know, the access bars and all this other nonsense, the guy just took Scientology, just like Warner Earhart did, and twisted and turned it around and changed some of the wording and changed some of the concepts, and boom, there you go, right? Access Consciousness. And apparently they are hardcore going after people who criticize them or are uh, calling out this, this Gary Douglas character. So um, that's what I can say about it off the top of my head right now. I've, um, you know, it's been one of those things where is it really worth my time to go into digging into this just to have this guy come after me because he's lawsuit happy? You know, the guy's making bank off of uh, people's delusions and, and encouraging them. So it's just more cult crap. And that's what this guy's up to. And, uh, and that's what I can say about it right now. Adria Vici Holub, what is your favorite graphic t-shirt ever? You know, honestly, I have so many, I can't really choose. I mean, I think what comes to mind for me right away is the uh, one I have of, um, I happen to have both of these shirts. I, I have, I, maybe there's other shirts out there that I would like more, but the ones that come to mind are the one of um, a, little, a little Jason that says, I wish it was Friday, <laughs> little Jason from Friday the 13th. And uh, the other one is the shirt that I put together with a little doctor saying, stupidity, together we can find the cure. I kind of like that one. So there you go. 
All right, guys, thanks for coming around and listening to me gab on here. I hope these answers this week were, you know, somewhat interesting and informative and useful to you in some way. And uh, again, thank you very much for inviting me into your home. I really do appreciate it. And I love you guys' uh, viewership and support. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.